The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushduni had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Detachment. Calcedon Position Paper, number 73. The French writer Gide spoke often to George's Seminon about the writer's need to remain unattached. Gide held that the writer must not love in depth, must not have children, must not have to worry about money, and must dedicate himself to his art alone. Giddy was also the man who wrote, quote, Family, I hate you, unquote. The politician Leon Blum, an architect of France's disaster in World War II, had a light view, quote, Bourgeois, I hate you, unquote. George's Seminon, When I Was Old, pages 233 to 255, 1971. These comments are an excellent insight into the spirit of the modern age. The two poles go together, an example being unattached and hating. The family, to put it mildly, requires attachment. The true family is an intense, deep, and basic relationship. The family gives birth to life, nurtures and protects it, and is very strongly protective of itself when it is a healthy and vital family unit. If a man hates attachment, he will hate the family, so that indifference becomes impossible. In fact, love furthers unity, cohesion, and life, whereas unattachment breeds distance, hatred, and death. Dr. James J. Lynch and the Broken Heart, The Medical Consequences of Loneliness, 1977, describes a very interesting bit of evidence on this matter. 
An alcoholic aged 54 whose life had separated him completely from everyone had a heart attack. For 14 days, doctors struggled to restore him to health, giving him the most intense medical care that could be imagined. He had no visitors and he had gone into a coma. A nurse took pity on the lonely, dying, comatose patient and held his hand. When she did, there was a decrease in the heart rate and a stabilizing of the heart rhythm. In other words, the touch of another person's hand had marked effect for a life on a comatose man. Attachment is conducive to life and unattachment to death. How much more true this is with godly attachments. Our modern culture is not congenial to true attachments, only to superficial ones. Modern civilization has become very urban precisely at that stage of history when the city is less needed as a concentration point. Before the era of trains, motor cars, trucks, and planes, the city was built at a seaport, an example a good shipping point, to facilitate the movement of goods. Such vantage points were not many, and growth and production required a strategic location in terms of shipping. Now, two reasons at least makes this markedly less necessary. First, from the military point of view, decentralization is an important form of defense. Army and Navy bases are dispersed, and so too are production centers because concentration increases vulnerability. Second, hand-in-hand with this decentralization is a greater ease of travel and shipment. In terms of time and ease of travel, as well as convenience, Los Angeles is today, quote, closer, unquote, to New York City than Buffalo was in 1815. And goods can be moved more readily and conveniently now from Los Angeles to New York than could be from Buffalo then. Cities have grown phenomenally in this century for several reasons. Cities have grown phenomenally in this century for several reasons, but especially because they supply anonymity, no attachment, and a separation from the family in the small town. In the early years of this century, novelists waged increasing war against both the family and the small town. As for the former, once seen as the strength of America, he was now the, quote, boob, unquote, quote, hick, unquote, and clod. It became intellectually fashionable to despise Christian familistic culture, and university professors held up such moral requirements as marked biblical faith to contempt and scorn. A large number of writers made themselves famous giving vent to their hatred of biblical doctrines of morality and attachment. Because biblical charity is personal, it had to be replaced, according to the humanistic intellectuals, by impersonal statist charity. The Bible requires that charity be personal in order to bind together in one community the rich and the needy. The needy are constantly referred to in Scripture as, quote, thy brother, unquote, an example in family terms with attachment, not detachment in mind. The culture of humanistic statism is stressed in personality and detachment. It should not surprise us that it has fostered cultural, class, and racial conflict. The rise of pornography is one of many consequences. In pornography, the person is depersonalized and rendered into something to be used. Women and children are reduced to a sexual function and are denied their status as persons created in God's image and to be seen and known only under God's law 
and in his mandate for love and community. The sexual revolution was against Christian family life and also against attachments. Sex was depersonalized. In group sex, wife swapping parties, and like activities, the cardinal sin was to express verbally or otherwise any affection for one's partner of the moment. The sexual act had to be totally depersonalized for one to be truly, quote, liberated, unquote. Homosexuals have been central to the realm of detachment. Not surprisingly, the, quote, culture, unquote, of detachment produces homosexuals in great numbers. Hatred of the family, of responsibility, of deep and abiding personal and religious ties, and much more marks the homosexual. There is a studied rootlessness as well as a commonly urban orientation or else an, quote, arty, unquote, and rootless colony of social rebels. Simenon himself reflected this rootlessness and a desire for a, quote, new man, unquote, in terms of unattachment. We still see man, he wrote, with all kinds of additions to his, quote, natural state, education, instruction, profession, environment, nationality, etc., unquote. He did not include religion and family in his list of, quote, additions, unquote, to man because as a true modern, he had already ruled them out. For Simonon, man heretofore has been, quote, clothed, unquote, man, clothed with the variety of affiliations and attachments. He felt that we were now apparently, quote, moving towards the naked man, unquote, page 69. This new concept of man, he felt, was, quote, apparent in unemployment insurance, social security, old age pensions, and more or less free medical care, including cures at therapeutic spas and dental prosthesis, unquote, page 7-1. For him, impersonal charity detachment was the mark of a new society for the new man. It would all lead to a, quote, a new religion or a state religion which amounts to the same thing, unquote, page 72. Ironically, at the same time that humanistic statism depersonalizes life and man, it speaks often about, quote, the brotherhood of man, end quote, a term from family life. This doctrine of brotherhood, however, is an intellectual concept and an abstraction. It has nothing to do with family life, even though the term, quote, the family of man, unquote, is often used. This idea of brotherhood refers to the statist integration of races, nationalities, and cultures to form a homogeneous blend in which all the distinctives of each are lost. The God-given personal identities and ways of white, black, oriental, and other peoples are all offensive to these statists. They seek to create a humanity which has no personal identities but acts, responds, and functions in terms of social revolutionary plans. Theirs is a plan for death, and they call it life. This goal of detachment is also stressed by scientists as a special merit on their part. The idea of scientific detachment is, of course, a myth, but it is a myth which has passionate believers. Supposedly, truth comes only by detachment, and hence to object to the experiments by fascist and Marxist tyrannies with human lives or to object to the use of live aborted babies in experiments is to despise science and its, quote, necessary, unquote, detachment. 
the monsters of history have always had a detachment with respect to human life. For scientific practitioners in any field, medical or non-medical, to dignify detachment is revelatory. We should not be surprised that human beings are callously used for experimental purposes. Neither should we be surprised that the figure of the mad and evil scientist has entered into popular literature and thinking. Such detachment is evil, and it is productive of cultural suicide. Detachment at its worst appears in the life of the people. Our Chalcedon scholar, Samuel L. Blumenfeld, has been speaking from coast to coast on education. He tells his listeners that a simple way to change this country's direction is to change the thinking of the next generation of adults by giving our children a Christian schooling now. He has found, as have others of us, that people want to sit on the sidelines and do nothing. They want somebody's, quote, exposure, unquote, of evils to affect an automatic change as though words can make problems disappear. It makes no difference what their income level is. They say that they cannot, quote, afford, unquote, Christian schools. This is another way of saying they cannot afford freedom and find enslavement cheaper. This proneness of people to do nothing is a form of detachment from life. It invokes cultural death. The continual price of liberty is not only vigilance, but also moral commitment and hard work. A few years back, an able historian called attention to the fact that the old Gary Cooper film, quote, High Noon, unquote, was a lie. The story tells us that when three gunmen returned to a town to control it, no man stood with the lone lawman. In the frontier era, however, men everywhere stood together to establish law and order. Quote, High Noon, unquote, better describe this century than the last one. This is the era of detachment and non-involvement. Only by the restoration of biblical faith can we end our suicidal detachment from one another and from life. Christian reconstruction is not merely a theological concern. It is a matter of faith and life. Our detached world is a hate-filled world. This state of things will not change until men are first in communion with God through Christ and in Him in communion one with another. The parable of the Good Samaritan makes very plain that life in God's family is not determined by social prominence or status, but by godly love and faith in action. The humble Samaritan ranks higher before God than Pharisaic churchmen and public leaders. Symptomatic of our age is the conduct of many retired people. As they move into an area congenial to their retirement plans, they do certain things with their church life. Some refuse to join any church or, quote, get involved, unquote, in church life and duties. They become church tramps and visit different churches. Others look for a big church with many members, reasoning that in such a congregation, involvement is not necessary, except to that degree which pleases them. Still others, feeling that they must join, insist on being inactive. Very simply stated, this desire for detachment is ungodly. In Scripture, age increases status and responsibility, whereas we insist on diminishing it. This fits in nicely with the popular view of heaven as a place without responsibility. The parable of the talents, 
Matthew 25, 14 through 30, is a parable about work and responsibility. Those who are responsible, quote, shall have abundance, unquote. But those who bury their talents and retire from responsibility and a godly attachment to others in Christ shall have even that which they have taken from them. The detached man in church faced judgment and death. April 1986 Gnosticism Chalcedon Position Paper Number 74 One of the most common of ancient heresies was Gnosticism, which is still very much with us. Gnosticism held that salvation is from the material or physical world, from flesh, and it comes through knowledge. Evil thus was not in man's heart, but in some aspect of his world. The flesh, the environment, for many today in technology and so on. Gnosticism was a development of Greek thought, plus far eastern influences which infiltrated Jewish and Christian thought. Many post-Christian Jewish writings, both mystical and apocalyptic, were influenced by Gnosticism, as was the later classic of Gnostic thought, the Kabbalah. In Christendom, the Gnostic influences continued for centuries and then began to diverge. At first, Gnostics like Jacob Bohm, Swedenborg, and William Blake had a Christian veneer, but subsequently Gnostic thinkers broke with Christianity. In the realms of art and philosophy, the Gnostics have been many. They include J.W.F. Hegel, Soren Kierkegaard, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nerville, Rilke, Yeats, Mozart, and others, according to Benjamin Walker in his Gnosticism, Its History and Influence, page 186 and 983. Gnosticism was, quote, antagonistic to the Old Testament and all that it stood for, unquote. Walker, page 7. This is a fact of central importance. Over the centuries, virtually all heresies have been hostile to the Old Testament or have decreed that it is now an ended dispensation or in one way or another have downgraded it in part or in whole. This has meant antinomianism, a hostility to biblical law, and hence a vague and sometimes ascetic morality. Downgrading the Old Testament is a way of rewriting the New, because the meaning of the New is destroyed if the Old Testament is set aside in any fashion. As a result, quote, the New Testament Christianity, unquote, of such heretics winds up being no Christianity at all. Any tampering with the full force of the Bible, either the Old or the New Testaments, in effect is intended to silence God, to diminish His spoken word, it should not surprise us that the ancient Gnostics held that silence best expresses God because he is a hidden deity, Deus Abscanditus, who is unknown and unknowable. Moreover, he is impassable, incapable of emotion, feeling, or passion. This is, of course, all alien to the God of Scripture. In fact, many Gnostics held that being or existence could not be ascribed to God, who is also beyond good and evil as well as existence. The modern Gnostic, Paul Tillich, held that neither being nor non-being could be ascribed to God. To all Gnostics, biblical law was and is anathema, for to hold that God requires righteousness or justice of us is to entangle God in time and history. 
Because the Gnostics held that God is beyond good and evil and beyond being, they could not identify God with any one form. In example, either good or evil or male or female. Hence, in their writings, God had to be inclusive of both male and female, father and mother, while transcending both. The Gnostic overtones in feminism are many. Gnosticism did not hold Adam accountable for the fall. It was something done to Adam. Modern thought, which looks to heredity, environment, the id, and ego, or some like, quote, cause, unquote, for human failure, and sin is alive with Gnosticism. For many Gnostics, the fall was into matter. Severus, a disciple of Marcion, held that man is divine from the navel up, and the devil's creature from the navel down. Man's being for Gnostics was tripartite, body, mind, and soul. Gnosticism has always flourished in secret societies and lodges, most of which are full of Gnostic symbols, rites, and doctrines. It has also espoused secret believing, in example, making no necessary actions in conformity to one's faith. As a result, Gnostics in the church saw no harm in compromising with state demands by Rome for registration and certification of all churches. For them, the faith was purely a spiritual matter, and compromise and apostasy were routine practices with them. None felt any moral hesitation in submitting to controls and avoiding persecution. One Gnostic woman, quote, saint, unquote, a hermit who had been a prostitute decided to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. She paid her way by plying her old trade as a prostitute, since her faith was a, quote, spiritual, unquote, one. What she did with her body was immaterial. Male Gnostics sometimes resorted to castration to humble the flesh. Many Gnostics were strongly ascetic. Others went into libertinism to show their contempt for the flesh often committing flagrant adulteries and other lawless acts to show their contempt for the flesh and the sins thereof. In all these and a variety of other rites and acts, many of which are fanatically ascetic or sexual, the emphasis was on what man does, not what Christ has done. This should not surprise us. Its name comes from gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge. Salvation comes not from God's grace, but from man's knowing. It is thus man's doing, not God's. Gnosticism was thus a form of humanism within the church. The first statement in Humanist Manifesto 1, 1933, reads, quote, Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created, unquote. While Gnostics talked about their God, a non-being, and, quote, emanations, unquote, from him, their cosmos was essentially a dualistic, evolving, cyclical realm which was self-existing. A non-being God cannot create. Hence their hatred of the Old Testament. Man in his cosmos of spirit and matter has an untangling job which is primarily intellectual and secondarily action. In either case, salvation is man's doing by knowledge and then by action. This action is non-moral. There is no sin in apostasy, compromise, adultery, or any other act provided man moves with the knowledge that only our spiritual life matters. 
Moral passion is as wrong as immoral passion for Gnosticism. We must separate ourselves from all such concerns and concentrate on spiritual knowledge. Gnostic influence spread into a variety of areas. In Hinduism, the Bhagavad Gita shows Gnostic thought, as does Mahayana Buddhism and Sufism in Islam. The Hermetics, the Neoplatonists, Manichaeans, Cathars, Paulicians, Messalians, the Athagigani, non-touching sect, the Bogomils, Albigensians, Troubadours, Goliards, and others. It has never lacked defenders, as witness G. Kruger in the new Schaff Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge. Faiths, which exalt elitist man, are usually very popular. Of course, theosophy and like beliefs are current manifestations of Gnosticism on one level of society. As we have seen, the Gnostic emphasis is on what man does, not on Christ's work. As a result, Gnosticism is a humanistic religion. But this is not all. The doctrine of God in Gnostic religions and philosophies, in effect, eliminates God. The consequences of this are far-reaching. Many groups which are not Gnostic in intent have still been influenced by Gnosticism. In their view of God's law, the Old Testament, man's part in salvation, and much, much more, all this leads to a loss of God's immediacy. When I read the law of God, I hear God speak. He makes clear that my whole life, my mental and physical existence, is circumscribed and governed by His law. I cannot act nor think except within the boundaries of His law without incurring His personal wrath and judgment. At the same time, I am totally surrounded by His grace, love, and providential care. Because I take God's word very seriously and literally, I realize that God is closer to me than I am to myself. He knows me better than I can ever know myself, and He loves me better than I can ever love myself. In fact, my relationship to myself must be at all times a mediated one. I can only live my life through Christ, my mediator, and in terms of His inscriptured word. I can have no direct or one-on-one -on -one relationship with anyone, only and always one under God in Christ and through Him. My wife, Dorothy, once told someone very close to her who was trying to use and exploit that closeness, quote, You are trying to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with me, but that's impossible. I can only have a relationship that is mediated by Christ and His Word, unquote. This explains the nature of modern art. It seeks a direct and autonomous experience between the artist and the person. This experience is unmediated and unique. It is not shared experience, nor is there a common meaning in the work of art for one and all. Immediacy is totally humanistic and autonomous. For example, the Bible tells us that man is made in God's image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and dominion. Genesis 1, 26-27, Colossians 3, 10, Ephesians 4, 24. There is thus a law against any worship of a man-made image as a representation of or a substitute for God. Exodus 20, 4-6. Only God can set forth His meaning. Modern art rejects this. 
So John Berger said in Ways of Seeing, quote, All images are man-made, unquote. Page 9, 1972. The older art still saw the world as God created, not man-made. But all that is now ended, these men hold. Quote, the art of the past no longer exists as it once did. Its authority is lost. In its place, there is a language of images, unquote. Page 33. These images are, quote, valueless, free, unquote. Page 32. Meaning free from God in his realm of law. In terms of the canons of modern art in every sphere, a man cannot be an orthodox Christian and still an artist. Whether in the world of art, the sexual sphere, or any other realm, modern man wants total immediacy. One writer himself, a part of this world of art, satirized the drive towards immediacy by saying that motion pictures have attained speech, quote, talkies, unquote, would go on someday to develop, quote, feelies, unquote. Humanistic immediacy, the Gnostic goal, has replaced the biblical immediacy of God in the mediated relationship of man with all creation, including other people. One result of this change is that men find the Bible's account of God's immediacy embarrassing. The God of Scripture is too close, too blunt, and too ever-present to suit modern man. One reason why the Holy Spirit is so neglected or wrongly viewed by many is because in the Spirit, the immediacy of God is inescapable. In Psalms 139, 7-13, David says, quote, Whither shalt I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Unquote. David praises God for what modern Gnostic man rejects. But men cannot escape the immediacy of God. They will know him either in grace or in judgment. May 1986. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown by his pain, the very prize. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
his name and hear our sovereign King. Praise his name and go the way that he will show and follow the road leading us home. Set you free. Set you free.